Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 14th, 2021. It's a Thursday. This is episode 2,804. At least I think it is. That's what I, that's what I wrote down. Let me make sure that's right. It's been a busy, busy week. And I could be wrong. Yesterday's episode was 2804. So today is 2805. Just something in my head said, Jack, you did that wrong. But I do know what we're going to talk about today. I don't need any help with that one. We're going to talk about function stacking. And I'm going to incorporate telling you about some new projects that are coming to Nine Mile Farm. Some are in design mode right now. One of them is actually in at least we'd call the test phase, the beta test phase, to make sure that it's going to work, or more accurately to figure out exactly how to make it work and how it fits in with all this. In fact, today's episode of the Miyagi Mornings video actually outlines that project to a degree. Now, there's not a lot that's happened yet. So even though it's in video form, it's not like a walkthrough or anything, because we're just not that far yet. But I'll tell you more about it. But that would be the one resource in today's episode that if you don't quite get what I'm saying when I talk about it, go look at it. And then I think if you've watched that video already, what I say about it here will expand upon the immense amount of function stacking going into that one system. And that's what today's all about. Today's all about how to take one thing and do many things with it. And I think this is a really important component to design. And it's certainly... We're coming at it today from a standpoint of permaculture design and leading off with our quote of the day today by Jeff Lawton, who is probably my greatest mentor in the world. Um, he said one time, it was just a little aside he put into one of his videos, and it just, it was one of those moments where you get slammed like a sledgehammer in the chest with it, and you go, okay, it's in my brain, and it will never go away. He said, the more restrictions upon a design, the more eloquent the design. And he continued on, if the designer is good at his task. And he was, this was in a video, I, I really hope I can find this video, it kind of disappeared. And I just kind of remembered it. It's one of those videos I need to find and reclaim and get up onto Odyssey. If any of you know where it is or you have a copy of it, let me know. It was where he talked about designing a five-acre property. He put all these ponds on them and interconnected them and things like that. And there was an issue with the catchment. And the, the rule in Australia is if the water comes out of a catchment, and you do something with it, like ponds or swales or whatever, when it, when, whatever comes back out the other side, it has to go back into the same catchment. You can't move it from one, one valley to another, one catchment to another. And he was able to do it. And somewhere in describing all of these things and all these connections, he just said that the more restrictions you have, because it was like right up against a property line and all these things he had to do, the more eloquent the design. And when it comes to function stacking, it's true. And even when you go outside of permaculture, And you go into things like designing a home or something like that. The minute you start to put restrictions upon a design, any decent designer starts to function stack. And the way I'd like to explain this with you today is I know all I know everybody in this audience at one time or another has watched videos or online, you know, online or on television about tiny houses, right? 
And, you know, there's that one, the Tiny House Movement or something like that, the, the blonde guy runs on HDTV or whatever. And, you know, it, it's always stupid shit that they do to try to put drama into it. Like, Bill wants to be able to keep all his ski gear and his dog equipment and his, you know, horse riding bridle inside his tiny house that's only 50 square feet or something like that. They always, like, put ridiculous shit in there. Like, this is why you need outside storage. But I digress. In those, you're taking something and you're taking a person or a couple or sometimes a couple plus kids out of like a 2,500 square foot typical American home and you're moving them into something that might have 300 square feet, including the loft space. And then all of a sudden, well, the stairs are also storage, right? There's storage in the floor of the kitchen for the wine cellar that's really like 12 bottles of wine, but let's face it, if they, on the shows they do a really great job. It looks really cool, and it works, right? Or you see it in RVs, too. Think about RVs. Like, you go to somebody's house, and the couch is a couch. The kitchen table is a kitchen table. A bedroom has a bed in it, right? You might have a sleeper sofa, but, you know, that'll just be like a fold-out that maybe the reason they even have it is because it was on sale when they got it. But you go to an RV, And you got an area that becomes like the eating table. And it's, you've seen them. They have two benches and a table, right? Now, some of these, what happens is you're done eating, but, you know, you need to work, so that's a desk. Well, it still hasn't really changed it. But now you're done eating and you're not working, so the table pops out, goes away somewhere, and maybe the two benches kind of rotate and they become one long couch that faces the TV. So now it's a couch to watch TV with. Well, and then when you're done with that, like the couches rotate back, the tabletop comes back in, the cushions relocate, and now it's a, you know, like a full-size bed. And what was just the couch or just the kitchen table now is doing four things. Now, there's a reason for this. There's a reason we do that in these small spaces. The restrictions, that we don't have as much space. The, the restriction in that environment is the spatial restriction. All of a sudden, we need to do more. If you think about the way our grandparents did things, like my grandfather had this old Mossberg shotgun, right? It was a 16-gauge, and he built a little side mount for it where you could put a, basically a, a low-mag scope on it, and it had an adjustable choke. And he shot everything from doves to turkeys with it, and he would add that mount and zero it in every year. You know, it wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but it worked with old-style Foster slugs with the choke set to open, and he would zero that at 25 yards. And that was, it, it shot squirrels, it shot, it shot deer, right? I, I'm sure if he would ever gotten lucky enough, it would have been more than adequate to kill a bear with. He shot turkeys with it, he shot geese with it, he shot ducks with it, right? And it was just a bolt-action shotgun. And I mean, this is, I have one almost like it. I bought it for 50 bucks, like 15, 20 years ago used. And he did all that with that one gun. You know, and eventually he, he, he ended up, he kept it and he had it. And that's what he used like back through like the, the Depression era and World War II and right after World War II. He ended up getting a 35 Remington later when he had some more money. But he always kept that mountain that scope. It was really, really cool. I'd like to... Actually, I'd like to know what happened to it. It, it kind of disappeared when I was away in the, in, during my stint in the Army. Um, but because he was poor, he did more than one thing with a thing, right? And you, you'll find this over and over again. Either space, economics, etc. will limit us and we'll start asking ourselves, 
what will do what we need that we already have that's currently doing something else. And all of a sudden, we start getting into the basics of function stacking. And that's really what function stacking is. And, and, but I want to give you a little bit more about like why you should care. It's one thing when we do it in the ways I just described. It's another thing when we're like, I want my homestead to provide me food, medicine, fibers, right, beauty, security. I want it to cancel noise off my road. I want it to look really cool to me, but I don't want people driving by to be attracted to it in a way that is uh, not beneficial to me, where they think, oh, I can go get something there and steal it. Like When we start thinking about all the things we want from our homesteads or our farmsteads or our farms or our businesses, the reason we should care is because we're able to do something that's like really, really important that we don't think about anymore because we have so much artificial surplus of energy in this country. Artificial surpluses of energy create artificial surpluses of money, including perceived perception of money. When we do function stacking right, we do more using less material, less energy, less money, less ongoing maintenance, less, less future inputs, and one more time, less money. I figured I'd say that one twice because it gets your attention, right? And, and we just do more with less in every way imaginable. And if you're trying to develop a homestead that can provide for you, you don't want to end up, well, yeah, I'm getting half my food from my homestead, but I'm doing twice as much work as I could just do work, get money, and go buy the food. You want to actually have a net gain in more than one way. right? You don't want to just create excess. You don't want your surplus to be surplus sweat equity that you're expending. You want your surplus to be harvestable. The other thing you want is when things go wrong, you don't want things to fall apart. You want to minimize the amount of maintenance and work that you have to do every day, not just because you're lazy, right? Not just because you don't want to work too much, not just because you only have so much time, but what happens when something goes wrong? I mean, I think about, like, when I first started putting systems in on, on my, my place here, and I didn't pay enough attention to this, Everything worked, but when I went out on a winter morning and something was broken because it froze, right? it would take me as long to fix that thing as it was supposed to take me to do everything else and now I'm set back for the day. What if the problem is you're hurt or injured and your significant other has to take care of it? And maybe they're not as familiar with it. The more simplified the actions, the easier it would be to talk through the parts they have to do for you. What if we're just having a really shitty run with the shit hitting the fan in various ways, and you have to spend time doing other things that you would normally prefer to spend on your homestead. You need to minimize the amount of minimum human activity necessary to keep things going. Function stacking does this. We also have to look at shortages of supplies. The first project I'm going to go over with you today is my new feed and composting system for my ducks. Well, I'm doing it right now because I want to spend less money on duck feed. Just plain and simple, that's that's the, 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 the initial idea, okay? How can I provide more food for my livestock without buying it? So that starts the whole thing out. But then it's also, well, that's just because the food that I choose to give my birds is expensive because we feed a soy fee free all natural feed. And so since it's expensive, that's one restriction, economic. I already want to do better. But when I look at some of the stupid, ignorant, 
suicidal agricultural policy of the United States of America over the last year and going into 2021 when we've had crop shortages on corn and soy and we continue to export our crops at record numbers while we have shortfalls in production with potential more shortfalls in 2021. And other nations are saying, hey, wait a minute, we're going to start banning exports on our shit and we're just... Throwing it all to China, I realize that not only is it expensive now, it might be more expensive or even hard to get some things by the end of the next year. So that's another restriction that starts leading me down that path. And as we walk that path, there's what Bill Mollison called the three-reason rule in, in one of his PDCs that I've watched videos of, right? And what he said is, whenever you put anything anywhere in a design, we call that an, anything that you put into a design. You say, I'm going to put this thing here. We call that a design element. Chicken coop, design element. Door on the coop, design element. Fence around the coop, design element. Right? Path that goes from the house to the chicken coop is a design element. If we put edging along the path, it's a design element. If we put some sort of drain that goes under the path to prevent erosion so that water flows under the path instead of across it, it's a design element. Put a trellis on the back of your raised bed. The raised bed's an element, so's the trellis. You got it? Everything that you say, I'm going to put this thing into this design, is a design element. And things that pre-exist become design elements if we design properly. So maybe somebody already put the chicken coop into place and maybe moving it doesn't make economic or logistical sense. And maybe it's not exactly where you put it, but now it's up to me to design around it so that it becomes, if not the ideal location, a very good location. If there's a tree in a certain spot, I didn't put it there. It's a 50-year-old oak tree. It's so big around I can't get my arms around it. Damn sure I'm not going to cut it down. But now how do I make it part of my design? And so we need to find three reasons, and if you find three reasons, you'll probably find more than three functions. So the three-reason rule will lead you to finding the functionality. So when we look at something like, well, I'm going to put my garden here. Why? Because it lines up with the back fence and looks good. That's not a good reason. And it probably then will make it difficult for you to come up with other reasons. You might say, well... I'm going to put my garden in this particular spot because, well, it'll be in my zone one and I can see it from my house. So when there's problems and issues, I'm more likely to take care of them. That would be one good reason. I'm going to put it here and orient it in this direction because of the solar aspect will give it, you know, either all day sun because I'm in a northern latitude and I really need the sun more, or I'm going to put it here. And I'm going to put it in this spot because I'm in a really hot climate and I don't want western sun. So I'm going to place it in this place where this tree, this building, this landform, whatever it is, reduces the western sun and enhances the eastern sun. See, now that's a good reason. And the more we do with that, the more we'll start to be able to find other functions that that thing can, that thing can deliver to us, and we start to stack those functions. So with that in mind, let's start digging into... Some of the things that I have planned. Now, again, I did a video on this. It was like 13 minutes long, really long for a Miyagi morning segment. But I went through my new duck feed and composting system using wastewater, aquatic plants, and more.
And there's a link to that video in the, in the show notes today, and it really is something that I think you might want to take a look at. So that I don't have to repeat all of it here in today's episode, of course it will be on the Sunday morning recap as well, or the Saturday morning recap of Miyagi Morning's podcast as well. Anyway, um, I found out this year that water hyacinth is very palatable to livestock, and specifically chickens, ducks, turkeys, goats, cattle, all eat this stuff like crazy. And, and, and literally, like, ducks relish this stuff. Additionally, the stem has a reasonable amount of protein in it, like 20% or something like that. But the leaf has, like, 35 or higher percent protein. It's, like, equal to soy. So this is, like, an awesome protein thing. And when it comes to feeding your livestock, what you'll find is getting the protein up is the biggest challenge for growing things yourself. So... I was already going to use water hyacinth in my water gardens this year because I had problems with water lettuce and that when the water lettuce gets to a certain lack of nutrient, it starts shedding the root hairs and it gets in the fish's gills and it causes a mechanical injury. So I was already going to use it and I was like, I saw that. I'm like, well, I, I'm just going to like feed it to my ducks. I knew they liked it. I just didn't know how good it was for them. So I'll start feeding. I'm like, well, like then I should compost it. Right, because they'll do a lot of aquatic vegetation composting, and it turns out of all the livestock, like everything except ducks, only eats the top. Ducks eat the roots to a degree too; they like the roots. So I was like, "Well, my ponds are way on one side of the property, and the duck house is on the other, and you know, it would make sense to have the food for the duck near the duck." That's how you start thinking with function stacking. Well, then I started doing research, and I found, and I'm like, well, how good is this before I get too excited? Turns out it's really great. And I read this whole research report where in some countries now what they're doing is they have these basic water tanks full of water hyacinth across the top of them. And they're running ducks in a more commercial environment where the ducks are confined. And so the ducks have water. And anybody who's kept ducks knows ducks make nasty water. So you have all this duck wastewater. You have to hose out their area. They go in water and they poop. No matter what you do, no matter even if you keep them out of the water, they're still going to make the water nasty. It's what ducks do. So they're running the wastewater through these tanks, and it comes out the other end, and it is like 83% better coming out than going in. Something It's something really, really high. Like there's only, Or there's only something like 13% of the contaminants remain at that point. And then it's easy to go ahead and just provide it to trees and plants and let that biofilter. And then they get nutrient kick, and then they get uh, they get irrigated, and they grow even better. So they're just doing this in a, like a, a tree lot. I was like, wow. So I've got these tanks that are about 130, 140-gallon tanks. And I'm like, okay, I could put those on one side of the fence where the ducks can't get to them, right next to where the ducks can go, where they go every day. And then above that, a little higher up, I can put a couple 50-gallon stock tanks and set them so I can easily fill and drain them into the lower tanks. Put the water hyacinth in the lower tank, throw the water hyacinth over the fence into the compost pit for the ducks to eat, whatever they don't use, it gets manured on, it gets eaten, chewed, whatever, incorporated with all the rest, and it makes compost. Then it's sitting right there. The duck house is sitting right next to it. The duck house is the dry litter. When the compost pit is full of all of this refuse, that's when I mix, and I just did a video on this, I take... The, the litter from the dry litter with all the carbon and the stuff that's all nitrogen, I mix them together in a pile and I start the whole process over. 
Now I'm just adding that element of the water hyacinth, but I'm also feeding the ducks. So now I'm making better compost, and I'm cutting my feed bill. And I'm making my daily chores of dealing with their wastewater easier. But I'm also taking that wastewater putting it into these tanks. Well, if you have 100 gallons of wastewater and 300 gallons of tank capacity, three tanks, what's going to happen after about four days? Well, the, the lower tanks are going to overflow. So I'm going to set those lower tanks to overflow to water and fertigate somewhere between four and six big trees that are going to be planted. Well, trees that are small, but they're going to be planted and grow very, very quickly. And then those trees will take care of the residual you know, duck water nastiness from that. But the way it can be set up is you literally walk out, open up a drain, tank A and B join, drain into tank C, D, and E, which are, and those tanks overflow into your, the lower end of the system. Exactly how that's going to tie in yet, I haven't fully figured out. I have some different ideas. I'm going to be playing with them. And like, again, beta test before full implementation. And then once that water's drained through, close the valve, turn another valve, fill it up. You can even have that valve going to a float valve so that once it's full, it'll stop so you can't forget, because I forget when water's running, and it's just good to go. Then I'm going to plant a willow tree right next to their bath area, and just their splashing alone will water that tree sufficiently. I can put one little pipe out of there. If the tree looks like it needs some water, drain some of the water there for that day. So then I'll have a willow tree. Now the willow tree is going to shade their bath area because I'm going to put it to the southwest side of their bath area so that it shades their bath area, keeps their bath water nice and cool. Ducks love willow, so there's another thing that they can eat. They have a fodder since it'll be a weeping willow because that's what my wife likes. As the weeping fronds come down, they eat it off and it grows back so it's self-feeding. That is all going to dump because willows are deciduous in the fall, so all that leaf fall will be right there. That's more carbon that can go straight into the duck composting system. So now I've got that. Then I've got, I do have well water right in the same area. Two simple back and forth style sprinklers on one splitter, so you can do one one day, one the next. And while I'm out doing all my chores, I just turn that on. And that waters the space between these, these two rows of trees. So you've got basically two rows of trees. You've got two open spaces. you got your back and you know, When I say back and forth, I'm talking about the sprinklers that are kind of like shaped like a fan, and they just go back and forth. That'll be enough watering if it's done every other day. Just while I'm seeing to all of this, that'll be done to water the, the spaces in between the trees. In between the trees, I'm going to go in and I'm going to throw down, you know, in the spring, I'll throw down, let's say the first crop will be something like Japanese millet. And the first time and only the first time that I do this, I'll put down a, a scatter straw mulch on top of it to make sure I get good germination. Right into the grass that's already growing there. That millet will grow up. It will put seed heads on. It takes about six to seven weeks to go to maturity. When it goes to maturity, I will open that gate up and I will let the ducks go in there and it will take them about a week to devour most of that millet. When they're done and they've obliterated it, I'll close that gate and put them back into their normal rotations and I'll go in there and I'll put down whatever, the, maybe buckwheat, maybe another crop of millet, whatever it is the next crop. Once I throw that down, I'll take my scythe, and you're talking about 15 minutes of work to scythe. It's wide open. I'm designing it so it will, be, it will remain easy to scythe like it is right now. Wide open, easy to see, easy to do. No rocks, nothing in the way, just shoo, shoo, shoo. 
I'll scythe it. All the straw from the previous crop will fall on top of the seed that I just put down. I'll water a little bit heavier that way. It'll grow them another crop. Maybe I'll grow them through one season. I could probably grow millet and then buckwheat, a buckwheat and a cowpea mixture. Then I'll do the same thing with the buckwheat and cowpea, another millet crop, and then probably one more buckwheat and cowpea. That's how fast those crops turn here. So I can do four of that, and when I get to that last one of the year, I'll put down barley or triticale or a mix of that, and I'll grow that through the winter, which grows slower, and then they'll go in and process that. And year after year, we'll actually be cropping land that's becoming more fertile. And then the whole thing's becoming more fertile, because this is all downgrade of the duck holding area, which has been holding ducks and being built up with nutrient for like seven years now. And if you look at my property right now, this area that I'm talking about is already greener and more lush than every other area on the property. So that's only the beginning of the function stacking there because whatever these trees are I, just, I, I put in place, each tree will be in its place for at least three reasons. It'll have at least three things that it does. And I don't even know what they're going to be yet. They might be more ornamental trees. My wife likes pretty trees. So maybe a couple of them will be like lace bark elm or something like that. But maybe a, a certain type of poplar that makes good fodder. Maybe an oak. Maybe a pecan. I don't know yet. But you can see how like that system could be expanded or contracted. You could be doing a very... You'd have four ducks in a suburban backyard. Let's say Muscovy is because they're quiet. And as long as you can get enough fall to do this with, then you're in great shape. I'm not done yet, though. That very nutrient-rich water would be something if I was trying to grow like a whole bunch of edible fish in, they probably would never be able to handle it. Right? However, mosquito fish, also known as gambrosia, those guys are basically the North American guppy, the non-tropical guppy. They don't, they're not pretty, but they look like a guppy otherwise. They eat the hell out of mosquitoes. My fish eat the hell out of those. I will be able to grow those in those three uh, hyacinth tanks like mad. I'm talking like put a net in there and the net's full of them. Now, you probably want a little aeration in there, so I'm going to put 100-watt solar power on the duck, uh, panel on the duck roof with a direct-drive pump that recirculates the water from the center tank to the two out tanks, the two outside tanks equally, and it just flows back to the center. That'll run about 12 hours a day through the summer. That's plenty. If the grid goes down, it doesn't matter. So it's also there because it's close enough to do that easily from the roof of the duct tank, and it just keeps going. And that project, as much as it does, it's not going to be hard to do. It's not a lot of labor. Digging the holes for the three tanks is the biggest part of the work. And I did half of one hole yesterday in about 45 minutes after I shot some lines with my laser level to get some ideas. And just start to, you know, I've got to figure this out. I got to figure, how high off the ground do I need to make the 50-gallon stock tanks for the ducks to swim in to get the flow directly into the lower tanks. And again, you guys know me, I can only dig so deep. I'm, I'm trying to get a foot there. If I get a foot, I'm golden. I'm golden. So that's one. Here's another one. I have new berry beds going in. So after years of, of working this property and doing some pretty amazing things with it, those of you who have seen it, I, I've come to an understanding that My limitations on things like berry and, 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 and fruit tree production will always be fairly significant. I just don't have enough soil. I can grow trees, but productive fruit trees and fruit trees are different things. 
So I would like to expand my production capacity for things like blackberries, gummy berries, grapes, mostly things to make meads and wines, but also fresh out of hand eating for my grandkids. And just, it's nice to have. So I came up with this idea, and I have this great spot that is just to the east of my big 50-foot aviary. And this is one of those things, why is it going there? Well, it's close to the main garden that gets all the attention right by the big Miyagi. So it'll get attention. That would be one reason. Two is because it'll fit. Three, it's got the right solar aspects, and it, some of the solar aspects can be played with a little bit. There is always the default. It's If I want to do this, it's the only really good area I have left. That's a valid reason if it's true. So there's a lot of reasons that it's going there. But when I started designing it, there were basically three patterns I could have designed it. These do need to be straight. They're running straight east and west. Well, it's almost straight east and west. It's straight east and west as the property can go. Um, and you don't ever want to design access out of your property. So by putting them exactly in this space, I can still get my, my pickup truck all the way to the uh, northeastern corner of the property. I won't block myself out. You never want to design access out. You design access in, right? Water access structure. You always keep those in mind when you're doing this. And so when I did this design, I'm like, okay, the simplest way, I need they have to be raised beds. That's what I was saying. So I ran the garden this year, and for the first time ever, you know, I built something up about 30 inches high, and I filled it with soil. And all of the problems that I've had with growing stuff here went away. Amazing what having some deep soils will do. Because people say, get your plants to put deep roots down. Yeah, they don't put deep roots in limestone, guys. I'm sorry. So I did that. So I know if I do berries in that same situation, it works. So I'm going to have to have these very tall raised beds. I also have them not just because I need the soil, but it does what? Keeps ducks out. So by going higher, I've, I've determined that right about 20 to 22 inches is where a duck just says, no, nah, I'm not doing it. It's not worth it. You know, basically, if they were hungry enough or whatever they might, but in general, they just kind of waddle right Oh, there's some stuff hanging down. I'll eat that. Like, you know, beans were over the side. They'll eat them, but they don't go up in there. So that's another function. But with those beds, I want them four feet wide because they can be accessed and worked on, and they're big enough to put, like, say, blackberries in the back, grapes across the top, gummy berries in the front, and a whole bunch of herbs and shit in them. And, and not be too cramped. The simplest design in what will fit there, because each, each, there's going to be two rows, 32 feet of bed each row. The way to put the most and the least amount of space is just make two 32 foot long, just four eight foot timbers in a row, and you got, you're done. However, it would limit my ability to be creative. So I looked at the space, and I can fit four four-by-eight-foot beds per row with about five foot in between each row. Now I can take cattle panels and put arches between them like I do with my main gardens that are over in that same area. If you guys have seen the ones around the pond, there's four beds, and each bed has an arch between it and the next bed, so there's four arches. So I was like, well, I could do that. And I looked at it, and it gets a little bit cramped. And I've learned cramped is never good unless you have no choice. The more space you have to get in, around, behind, mow in between, etc. things, the better your life will be. The easier the maintenance will be, so you'll do the maintenance so it'll get done so you don't get behind. So when I looked at that, 
And I should put out, maybe I'll put out a video tomorrow or something. It might be not a Miyagi video, but I'll just walk through what I've drawn on graph paper to clear this up a little bit. I decided, well, one thing you can do is do two 16-foot beds per row. So push them together. Okay? And that would make things a little bit fit, would make them fit a little bit better. In fact, it would fit fine. But now I'm down to only each row having two beds. The other ends, there's nothing there. So you end up with one arch per row or only two total arches. So I kept looking at that, and I'm like, well, what I could do is each row would be composed of starting moving from, let's say, west to east. You have a 4x8 bed. Then you have a 4x16 bed. Then you have a 4x8 bed. Now you have two arches, and this is where it gets really cool. Going up each arch will be a grapevine that goes across the back, where there'll be a trellis across the back of both rolls, rows. That trellis will be eight feet in the air, which will be not quite eight feet, more like six and a half feet from the top of the bed, because there'll be eight-foot landscaping tenders in each corner. There'll be some trellis wire going across, and there'll be blackberries across the whole back of all the rows. Each, each eight feet will have a different variety of blackberry. So we have different timing. So they get harvested over a longer period of time, and we'll eventually find, like, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that we'll figure out that, like, of the eight varieties, like, five or six of them are really, really good, and the other ones, eh, okay. So we'll, you know, we'll eventually success those out and take the other winners and bring them in. Well, blackberry doesn't need to grow up eight foot. It's not going to grow up eight foot. So across the top trellis line, you run the grape. But you run the grape, let's say, from, from one bed across the trellis and up, uh, 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 let me say, I'm sorry, from one bed at the end up the arch created by the cattle panel onto the top trellis wire eight feet over. And then you run a grapevine that crosses it coming the opposite direction doing the same thing. So they cross each other and they kind of tee out. Well, most people train grapes, you train one main line up and you train two cordons or two branches out. You can train a single cordon, though, right? A single one long vine. And then all the energy goes into that. So you basically train them that way. And they're way up and above everything else. And they just kind of cross each other like that. What that's going to do for me by, by the design I did, which is an eight, a 16, and an eight, is your eight foot one goes halfway down your 16. And then your 16 one goes all the way down your 8. And then the two that come to the 16 meet in the middle. I know that's kind of hard to follow on an audio podcast, but it's elegant as shit. And it gives you a definitive point. This line ends here. To hither thou shalt go and no further. I've already found the great varieties that are best for my area. Two of them in particular will be growing those. And those grapes combined with blackberries will make fantastic meads and wines. Plus be good for just general food purposes. Then I'm going to be including some other things. I've got some shady spots that I'll be able to finally do some gooseberry here and gumi, which I know does outstanding here already, and some other things. Additionally with that, though, now I've got all this underspace, right? So all this stuff will be pruned up just a little bit. So I'm going to put in tons of flowering perennials, specifically herbs that are medicinal. Now I've got this whole new area with all this flowering, blooming stuff right next to my vegetable garden. 
So now there's more beneficials. There's more pollen. You see how it all starts to work together, and it, it goes from there. And these two projects, as they get done, will become more evident as to what they do. My shop redesign is another one. Now, this isn't growing things, right? But I have an 800-square-foot shop right next to where that big garden system is we've just been talking about. And it's never been well organized. When I'm, and this is one of these things where you sometimes you have to bite the bullet and remove infrastructure that somebody else put in, even though it's going to cost you money to do so in time and labor and effort. There was some shelving in there. It was terrible. It was huge. It was high. It was like four feet deep. You can't reach the back. It just sucked. Some of you have been here and seen it. I tore it all out this year. And I'm going to build um, a workbench system that's going to provide me tool storage, overhead lighting, work surface area. I mean, it's just going to be... It's just going to be awesome. I'm not going to go deep into that one because you know, it's another one's hard to describe. You get kind of bored. But the other thing that's going to go in there is my vertical farm that I built on the wire rack system you guys have seen. I built that to show that it can be done, to show that you can do it in limited space. I don't have limited space. I'm ready to kind of do more with it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build instead of the six foot high of that rack, those, those, uh, those baking racks, I guess you call them, I'm going to go with eight foot timbers and build a, about a four by eight roughly um, footprint, about this really close to the same footprint of that rack. And I'm going to be able to then, though, use like two by sixes and build a box that goes underneath it for the, for the reservoir of the fluid so that I have less issues supplying all three levels with flood and drain. And that whole system is going to become, I'll grow some, you know, basil and stuff like that in the winter. But mostly, that's going to be a seed starting system. So I'm going to have one place, lighting, be able to close it in, control the temperature, all of that stuff. That's going to be 100% my place to start all my seeds. So yeah, like I said, one of the trays, yeah, we'll leave it one tray for, you know, growing some basil and some other stuff in the winter when it's hard to grow outside. But mostly it'll just be, hey, turn these trays on and we'll grow microgreens as well. So the top tray will grow microgreens and, and do starts. The middle tray will grow starts. And the bottom tray will be a grow-out tray for some limited food. Okay, that's pretty good. That's quite a bit of reasoning. However, in that tank, this is going to be a aquaponics system. I am not going to run it as a hydroponics system anymore. I have enough going on with aquaponics that I can do that. It's really easy, uh, and it works plenty for what I want to do. But I'm not done yet. Because that's what it will be, it will be easy to just throw a couple lights in down where the fish tank is, where they generally don't need lights. Most of the year, those lights will stay off. When I come into my fall period, and I have all these wonderful top vegetations that die in my winter, people are like, water house is invasive. I understand that if you live in Houston or Galveston, where I live, it's not because it dies all the way, D-E-A, all the way dead every winter. Which means if I leave it out in my other ponds, it dies, and I don't have any more, and now I have to go back to eBay and buy it from the guy that sells it illegally out of Florida, right, and, and, and get more. But if I have that tank, I can just grab a couple plants and throw them in there. I can, I'm also going to be using another plant in these systems called Azola. And it does not make through our winners either. While duckweed usually does, never hurts to have something in reserve. Additionally, I can put a whole bunch of my minnows 
In my winter time, I can dip that a bunch of minnows out before it gets too cold, throw them in there. If I ever have some sort of major catastrophic failure and loss of my minnows, I can restock them. Plus, I can have other fish and other critters in there that are kind of my base reserve in case anything goes wrong. So it serves that backup and carry-through function as well. It starts seeds, it grows food, it grows microgreens, and I can even use it to grow microgreens for the ducks because that improves the quality of their eggs, and it also helps us sell our eggs for more money. You getting what I mean when I say function stacking yet? And again, I can only describe so much of this. Um, I also Here's a really simple way to think about this. So I have to, every day, fill up swimming pools for my ducks, even with the other thing that I'm going to do. It's still going to make sense to have water not at their house, because if you give them everything at their house, they don't leave. They're like a fat guy during the quarantine binge of Netflix. Like, I got nothing to do. I, they sent me a government check. I got my free Netflix subscription. They're paying me to stay home. I've got a freezer full of ice cream. I ain't going nowhere. When you put their food and their water and things that they like out other places, they go work. Right? They don't consider it work. They still think they're screwing off, and they are. But because I'm getting them to screw off in the right area... They're screwing off his work on my behalf. They're doing the job so I don't have to. They're weeding, they're pest controlling, right, and they're fertilizing. They're doing three functions just in that. Well, that kiddie pool of water is going to get filled up, and at the end of the day, you guys know what it looks like. It looks like shit water because that's what it is. It's full of duck shit. So the next day, it has to be dumped, moved, and refilled. And if you don't move it, and all the water goes to the same place for a couple of days, they, they eliminate all of the vegetation, they make holes, and they compact the soil into mucky muck, and it stinks. So you're going to dump it, and you're going to move it every day. I generally sort of kind of do this, but I was out there yesterday, and I kind of worked through a pattern, and I have a new pattern to where I can literally come up with location numbers, and if I have somebody farm sitting, I can say, well, it was at position three yesterday. Here's your schedule for the next week while I'm gone. Fill, dump, four pools every day, boom, done, and it's going to be watering and fertigating trees that have been lackluster. I pick the trees that are doing the best given the harsh conditions they're in, and they're the ones that are going to get this. And this is on a 14-day cycle where it'll come back around to the original point 14 days later. Uh, and if you, if you do the math on that, it's 56 individual trees and bushes that get watered and fertilized once every 14 days, like clockwork, and once the pattern's established, there's nothing more to think about. Now, I can probably come up with some more in how all these elements work together, but I think that's enough for today's show, for you to understand how simple this can be. And I want you to think about how that can be like your silver bullet. Let's say that you have a small property, but ducks work on it, okay? And you want to put in... I don't know. You don't need that much. And if you put in some little micro swales and stuff, like one dump can do two or three or four pretty easily. But even if we just had, we're going to plant trees and bushes, and each, you know, maybe you're not using a big kiddie pool like I do because you only have a small amount of ducks. You put in, you go get four of the 14-gallon um, mixing trays, the concrete mixing trays. They're like seven bucks a piece at Home Depot or Lowe's. You can get the 21s if you want them. They're a little bit more, but somewhere in that range. You get four of those. And then you're going to run a 14-day cycle just like I do. You, too, can have 56 trees. But, I mean, you probably don't need to do that, right, on a small property with, you know, five or six ducks. So maybe you get two of them. 
And on a 14-day cycle, you can water, and I mean extensively water. That's a lot of water for one tree, especially once it's established. Water and fertigate those trees every day, 14 days, that would be 28 trees. That's a lot of production. That's a ton of production. And it was, it's as literally as easy as dump, move, fill. But how much function stacking is going on there? Right? You're watering, you're fertilizing, and you're providing water for your ducks. There's your three. And if you think about where the trees go and you're strategic, again, maybe we have a clump of three trees or a tree and a guild of like several bushes and herbs. And then we have a little micro swale built into that. And then we dump that, and boom, that whole guild is watered and fertilized. And if you live in a climate where you're not that arid and hot in the summer like I am, you can be on a 21-day cycle or even a 28-day cycle. It, basically, you're giving that big flush of water and fertigation once a month to a system. And it's plenty. And that's a but And that's the simplest, lowest-tech thing you can do. There's some places on my property that I've did some really complex things that I kind of like, I should have just sheet mulched and done that. Of course, like when I was building that stuff, I didn't know I was destined to be a duck farmer. But you learn as you go. Um, and next up, here's another thing that I'm going to do. I have an issue with it doesn't rain for weeks or months, and then it rains a lot. And then my really expensive duck feed I was talking about, if I don't realize it's going to rain, I go out and I have like three big tins of peanut butter that the ducks may or may not eat depending on how peanut buttery it became in the rain. And I don't like that. It makes me unhappy. So I need to make sure that the, the, the feed is covered. And I also would like to not have to give them feed every day. I would like them to have enough feed to last five, six days, especially if something goes wrong and I can't get home. I would like to at least know, look, you know what, they're going to have water and food. Maybe it's going to be a little poopy water, but they're going to be okay. You know, unless a coyote comes, they're going to be okay. Or if somebody has to fill in for me real quick, like at least like that's done. Like if they don't have to do anything for a day or two, except close the door at night, it's great. So some sort of hopper feeder. Now as soon as you make something large like that, you centralize your feed. So all the ducks go to that one place every day. If you want that, that can be useful. We could probably figure out how to function stack that. But what I came up with, I'm going to just basically take a big piece of pipe and make a hopper feeder out of the pipe so it attaches to a base, and you pour feed in the top, and you throw a cap on it, and the feed comes out the base. But then I'm going to put a larger roof on it, so now it provides shade. And it's going to sit on a frame with four simple, like, you know, lawn tractor wheels that are like eight bucks a piece, and then you can just roll it. And what that allows me to do now is wherever their water is, I can put their food in a separate area that's nearby, basically line of sight, line of duck sight. They can see it, they know where it is, and that's going to cause them to do what? Primarily occupy their day in between those two locations. So now I can do all types of control of my duck activity level, which again is weeding, it's pest control. At certain times of the year, I want them in certain areas. You know that grass I talked about scything? If I do that right, I don't even have to scythe it. They'll, they'll, they'll not really mow it. They'll fold it over. There's areas I've gone where I take ducks, and I take sprouted sunflower seeds, and I throw the sprouted sunflower seeds into the deep grass. And they go in there looking. And the way they're built, they just, they just kind of roll the grass over, and it creases. 
and it basically stops growing vertically, and then new grass grows up through it, and it forms like a tatami mat of, of living mulch that slowly dies and decays. It's really awesome. So I can get a lot of control over where they go just by moving that feed around. So with that, I, you know, some of you are probably going, wow, that's a lot of shit out of just a few things. And like, my mind's always going this way. And you might wonder, like, how can you get your mind to start really thinking this way? And probably a lot of you already came up with a bunch of ideas, like, well, I could take a rabbit pet hutch, and I could put this thing under to catch the manure. And like, there's all kinds of ways to do these types of low input, high return things, where you get maximum bang for minimum effort, money, and material. But there's a way to start maximizing your ability to function stack. One is what you're doing right now. Take in new information constantly. Always learn a little bit more every day about the things that, that help you do what you're going to do. Learn about a new plant. Learn about a new fodder plant. Learn about a new propagation technique. Learn about a new plant variety. Learn about a new method of growing a plant. Like, learn about a different breed of animal. Learn you know, all these things. Learn, you know, what does this thing eat? How can you make your own hay out of just lawn grass? Like, there's so many things you can do. And you don't have the ability to make certain connections until you have the, these keystone points of knowledge. So if you think about the duck food composting system I let off with today, as awesome as that's going to be, it was one thing. I'm, I'm like, how do I feed my ducks high-protein feed for less money? And I'm like, I wonder if anybody's ever fed any of the aquatic plants that I grow anyway to ducks. And it turns out they eat, of course, they eat duckweed. And duckweed's high protein too, but if you've ever grown it, you know your yields are somewhat limited compared to what people think. And when I saw water hyacinth, and then that extra piece of knowledge, they're using it to treat duck wastewater, feeding it back to the ducks. And what I left out was in that little piece of information, when they compared like two systems, One where they just let the wastewater go into a typical wastewater lagoon, nasty, disgusting thing, and they fed the ducks all conventional feed. The other one, they used the water hyacinth to filter the sewage and fed the water hyacinth back to the ducks. The incidence of disease in the ducks went down with the water hyacinth. Even though you were feeding them vegetation that was fertilized with their own waste, their disease incident went down, their egg-laying rates went up, and their meat gain yields went up as well. So they put weight on faster, they had less diseases, and they produced more eggs. Well, with that knowledge, the whole system came into being. Because it was like, how do I do this in a way that makes sense? And then once you start thinking that way, all the other connections show up. So constantly learn new things. Because that will let you put more things together. Then think constantly about energy outputs and energy flows. How can I make this thing run for less energy? How can I make this thing not dependent on the power grid? Right? It's not about saving polar bears. It's about power goes off. And if something's dependent on grid power and it goes off, backup only takes you so far. Backup also takes effort and work. So when I came up with the duck composting system... I took, you said, learn a new thing. This year at our fall workshop, Farmer Hogeye Harry, right, he came in and he said, I'm going to show you how to do a solar pump for less than 200 bucks from all off-the-shelf things. He did a solar panel, a, a little little controller, and a pump. 
hooked it all up, stuck the pump in a bucket, pointed the solar panel at the sun, and water like just started running. And it was a significant amount of volume. And it was sunny, but it was not like a perfect day. Well, I saw that, and I'm like, I need to start putting backup systems in with that in some of my larger ponds. So at least that we'll have circulation during the day if the grid goes down. Well, then when I put this together, I'm like, you know, that plant, those plants are going to grow faster with oxygen, and I'll be able to support minnows, and I won't have to worry about mosquitoes. And I have a solar panel, so all I need is the controller and the pump. I put it right on that roof. Done. Like, that's going to happen. So now we're looking at the energy flow, but we've added the knowledge component. That's why this is all important. It has to go together. And also be clever with low-tech solutions. It is amazing with that if that knowledge leads you to low-tech, simple solutions, what you can do with it. Here's an example. And I need to do a video of this because one of you all asked me about it. You were having trouble using it in one of my projects that, that I have online um, that I won't get into now because it'll make it go too long. But it's basically called an aquarium siphon. And all this does, I want you to imagine you have two... 10-gallon aquariums sitting on a shelf at the exact same height right next to each other. And effectively, you would prefer to have one 20-gallon aquarium. Maybe you want to pump water out of one into the other and have it come back into the other. How are you going to do that? Well, what you would do if it was easy, and it can be if you're brave about drilling holes in glass, is you would maybe put a bulkhead in both aquariums and attach a pipe between those bulkheads so that basically they're now a single tank. They're separated, but they're also together. So if they were both empty and you started dumping buckets of water in one, they would both fill up evenly. As fast as that water can go through that pipe, water finds level, they flow up evenly. Okay, that's great. But two bulkheads, two expenses. Two holes to drill, two things to do, right? Uh, two bulkheads with holes and seals, two points of failure. So you can see like there's points of failure, more work, more effort, and risk of damage to the, the product itself, to the glass. So one way to do this if you're not real worried about how it looks or you have some kind of hood that can hide it is called an aquarium siphon. And this is incredibly simple. It's three pieces of pipe and two 90-degree elbows. And basically you make, think about how that would go together. You've got two, two, go, two that come down and go vertical. They each go into a 90, and those two 90s go into a horizontal. And it just sits on top, and I'm going to do a video because I have some of these in place in other places, and it just sits on top of the two tanks. And as water goes down on one side, that siphon pulls water through the other. It works just like a bulkhead, maybe not quite as fast, but it's cheap. It's two 90-degree uh, fittings and three pieces of pipe. And pipe is cheap. Fittings are expensive, but that's pretty cheap with only two fittings. So you make two of them. Two is one, one is none. That way you get faster response in pulling over, but if one of them fails... The other one takes over. And I even use these in places where I have tanks next to each other that are connected with bulkheads, and I put a siphon, aquarium siphon across the top because two is one and one is none. If that bottom one clogs, even if it's not fast enough in that particular system, it helps. And the bigger the pipe in the siphon, the quicker the response. So if you go with two-inch pipe, it'll be way faster than half-inch pipe, and one-inch pipe will be pretty good like that. Okay, how do you make it work, though? You turn it upside down so the bottom of the pipes are sticking up and you fill it with water. And then this is the only tricky part. You kind of really quick flip it and stick it into both things. You need to do it before the water comes out. That's it. That's all you got to do. 
And you can, if you, you can experiment with this at home yourself once you see how to do it if I do the video. Put those two 10-gallon tanks there, right? And you can sit there with, a, with a, a quart jar, fill them both up, and start trying to take water out of one and put it in the other. Give it to your kid. Tell them, hey, put water from this tank to that tank until this tank is, you know, fill them like both halfway. And like, do it until this tank is almost empty and this one's almost full. Come get me when you're done. See how long it takes them to figure it out, right? Because it it's like magic. It just keeps going over. Now, you want that pipe, the vertical pipes, to come way down near the bottom. So if the level comes down, because if the level comes down enough, what will happen? The siphon breaks. Once these are put in, unless they get clogged with something, or unless there's an air gap because you didn't get the fittings tight, And I don't glue them because if I ever don't want to use them anymore, fittings are expensive, pipe is cheap, you just knock them apart with a hammer, right? Knock them together with a rubber mallet. Unless you have a seal fail or a clog, they pretty much just sit there forever. You don't have the potential points of failure from leaks, right? And you don't have the expense and you don't have the need of installation and they could be repurposed later if you decide to do something else. They're not a permanent thing. That's freaking low tech but imagine what you can do with it we don't have this set up now but in one of my aquaponic systems when we had quail in the aviary since it was basically it was a hundred gallon tank there was a floating bed so it was like a raft bed and water came in and out constantly from the main ibcs so we built something similar it's hard to explain here but it was basically a pipe with a 90 it was a piece two inch pipe and it went down And it went down and it had four of the little cup waterers that you screw into like a, a water tank. And the quail could drink. And as they drank water, since it was all closed and sealed up, instead of acting like a siphon where it runs and drains the, the tank, it would just stay full. And the quail could constantly drink the aquaponics water down at their ground level. And I never had to give the quails water. My buddy David built that. But it was using the same principle, an aquarium siphon. I still have that thing around, and I'll, I'll kind of show it someday in a video. But you just start once you understand that. And I need to do that video because I looked up aquarium siphons on YouTube, and amazingly, the simple version, there's no videos of it. There's more complex ones where you use the siphon technique for water changes. So as the tank fills to a certain level, it flows straight through. But the simple tank-to-tank -tank one, I haven't found a video. So I'll do that for you guys this week. Um, then, next thing... I want you to push yourself when you evaluate every element. When you say, I'm going to put this thing here, just ask yourself, why this spot? Why am I doing it? And can I come up with more than one reason? And I'll, I'll give you a pass sometimes. Sometimes the answer is, because I want this thing or need this thing, and this is the only place that it will go. Even then, though, you can probably still make this work because you're going to have other things. And now that this thing has to go there, how does it affect why other things go other places? But always ask that. What can it do? What can this thing do? Because it's so easy to just say, well, it's a garden. Well, it's a garden, but if it's a raised bed, it's causing shade to go somewhere. If it's high enough, it keeps certain things out. If it's low enough, it lets certain things in. If it's two raised beds, they create some sort of stability point that could do something like create an arch or a trellis. Right? There's, it's going to, if it's, if it's hit with sun, it's going to become a thermal battery. There's like, it's almost unlimited even with something that simple. So when you get into more complex elements, don't let yourself off the hook with, well, it just does this one thing. Because it's not what does it do, it's what can it do. And you might not need it to do all the things it can do. 
Maybe it doesn't make sense, but if you know all the things it can do, you can pick out the ones that are useful and tie them into other systems. Then, you need to always look, and remember, elements are not just things that you put in a place. They're anything in your design. So, my ducks are a design element. I can put their house in a certain place, I can put their water in a certain place, but I can't put them in a certain place unless I can find them, which I don't want to do. Right? They're going to free range through my property or more accurately through the paddocks that they're allowed to access as they're allowed to ask them, access them. But they are a design element. And they have needs and they have outputs. They need food, they need water, and they output poop and poopy water. Right? That's one way to look at it. But everything you have has needs and inputs and outputs. And you need to evaluate those. Think about your garden. Your garden needs water. It needs fertility. What are its outputs? Well, it outputs food. I hope so. But most people's gardens, the majority of the biomass they produce isn't something we eat. Like I, I taught you guys this year, you can eat tomato plants, despite what people say they're not poisonous. They're a nightshade. Yes, they are. They're still edible. Yes, they're even in fine restaurants now that they use. They make like a... Uh, Oh, what do you call it? Like a, like a pesto using tomatoes. It's leaf. It's crazy. Um, but most people aren't going to eat all of it or even most of it. So you have, for a tomato plant that produces X amount of tomatoes, it produces a huge amount of vine. And you can keep going. Like peppers, the same, right? Melons, the same. Squash, the same. You have much more biomass. So it has an output of biomass. Well, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to compost it? Are we going to chop and drop it? doesn't matter. We're going to do something with it. Once we know what we're going to do with it, that will actually impact how we set the garden up and where we locate it. Because if we're going to compost it, then we might want to locate the garden or the compost area in some way where they work and consort together. Or if a lot of what's going to come out of the garden that's a surplus is you know feedable to chickens, we might want to think about our pathways in and out of the garden, in and out of the chicken area, and in and out of the compost area. Right? You start seeing how all of these things, their needs, their outputs, their inputs, they all affect the location and, and, and the interconnections. Next, you need to ask along with that, how Does it or can it, each individual element, relate to other elements and energies? So if the sun hits something, it gets warm. Do I want it warm? Or do I want it cool? If I want it warm, then I want it relating to the solar energy in that it gets hit as much as possible by the sun. If I want it cool, I want it in the shade. That's pretty simple. But do I want it in the sun some, but not all? Like I said, in the southern garden, you love eastern sun. Not so f much a fan of western sun, right? Because, like, in, in certain places, like, your, your western wall of your house, the housing zoning basically says you're not even supposed to put a window in the west wall of your house. Because by the sun, time the sun's hitting that window, everything's blazing hot. I'm not for government putting that restriction in, but at least from a design standpoint, that one makes sense. You don't want western windows in a hot climate. That's insane. You're just asking to cook you the inside of your house. right? So you have to think about how do these energies relate to the element and how do the elements relate to other elements. It's very, very important. And then what can I eliminate or provide with something I already have? So when you start thinking about, well, you know, it would be great if I could do this. Well, do you have anything that already does that? 
I want to I want to plant these things. Do you already have some of those things? And maybe they're just not doing well. Why are they not doing well? How can you alter what's going on? Or do you need to transplant them? Right? You don't always need something new. And how can I eliminate things? Right? How can I can I do more with less? Do I really need a pump in this system? Can this system be passive? You know, do these do do I need to actually feed this to the animals, or can I allow them in to feed upon it and simply restrict their access except when I want to give them access? Is that easier? Harvest and feed or open gate? Which one's easier? Just because one's easier doesn't mean it's what you should do. How does it relate to everything else in the design? This is all important. But what I want to finish with today, it's probably one of the most important skills, if not the most important skills of a good designer. I actually think it's almost impossible, not impossible, but it's almost impossible to do a good job with function stacking and element evaluation about why it's going, where it's going, and how it relates to other things, and do a bad design. I, I hate to say impossible because... Uh, <laughs> One of my one of my business mentors said I you know I always try to make things idiot proof but the idiots always outsmart me and so no matter what you do somebody can break it if they really try but so I would say it's almost impossible to get this right and then and then get the design wrong because remember design is individual to the site and to the 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 resources and the wants and desires and needs of the individual using the design. So when we look at something like, how do you add 2 plus 2? It's pretty straightforward. Maybe you can come up with a couple different ways to explain it, but in the end, 2 and 2 make 4, right? That's just the way that it is. But when we say, how do you install a garden? This is why the favorite words of every good permaculture designer are what? It depends. How do you install a garden for what? Herbs? Or vegetables, or flowers, or ornamental ground covers, like or cacti, or we we haven't even gotten to anything but well, what are you going to put in it? And we're already like twenty. It depends, right? Okay, so vegetables. Okay, what kind of vegetables? Do you want to grow green vegetables? Do you want to grow fruiting vegetables that are actually fruits like peppers and tomatoes? Do you want to grow both? Uh, well, I want to grow both. Okay, fine, we got that. All right, now. Um, well, where do you live? If you live in New Jersey and Texas, you're probably going to take some different approaches, right? And then, well, is your soil well-drained or is it wet? What's your rainfall? What areas do you have available? How much solar exposure do they get? What are your winds like? You see what I'm saying? Like, Everything is subject to answering all these questions. There is no direct right way. Doing a design, like, okay, I might do totally different designs for two people if they had identical properties, which they never do, but if they did. Because one person may answer the question, if, you, if they're honest, how many hours a week do you want to spend maintaining and working in your system? Four. Okay, we can do this. And the other one says 12. Okay, we can do this. And if I believe them both, I might have dramatically different designs even with the same basic goals for what they want. Because one person might really enjoy being out in their garden and cutting flowers and stuff like that. So we might put in a lot of stuff that's really great cutting flowers for them. 
that, that need to be deadheaded, which is to take the deads off, and need to be cut. And, and maybe they really like herbs, and they like to do herbal medicines and things like that, and they know they want to do that. So we want to plant these, these like perennials that make good cutting flowers and good medicinal herbs. Where somebody else that only has four hours and doesn't really care about that, we still want to put some perennials and herbs and stuff in there, but we want stuff that kind of is just like, you know, set it and forget it, or it needs maintenance like once, you know, once or twice a year in this area. And we're not really worried about medicinals. If they're not worried about medicinals, we're worried more about, well, let's, you know, beneficial insects and pollinators. Now, you can do both, and you should. But I'm going to be a little different. In what I'm, if somebody is really big on feeding themselves, then I'm going to put in mostly edibles. If somebody's really big on, I want beauty and wildlife and some edibles, I'm going to do something different, even on the same property. So everything comes back to it depends. So there's, there's no right or wrong individual design, but there is good and bad. There's poor design. There's shitty design, there's totally shit design, there's okay design, there's decent design, and there's good design and there's great design. And if you, I, I believe if you master function stacking and element design, element placement within in a design and the interaction between elements and an understanding of the energy flows, if you do just that, it will almost be impossible for you to do a bad or shitty design. It really will. You won't even have to learn about things like zone-based design. So your areas of greatest activity, the ones that need most of your attention, should be closest to where you are every day, either your house or sometimes it's just you naturally are going to go to this spot on your property. And then zone two, a little less maintenance. Zone three is more your main crops. Zone four is like your farm forestry. Zone five is your wilderness. You just don't touch. You, you know, hunt and gather and forage in. That's about it, you know, and occasionally maybe harvest some timber. If you do what we talked about all day today, you don't even have to know that shit. It's going to happen. You're going to end up in a zone-based design system if no one ever told you what a zone-based design system is. It's, it, and if you learn about how plants work, like vines and bushes and shrubs, and then you relate it to the space, well, do you make a great big food forest... Right or my berry system where the berries kind of become overstory trees and they reduce the scale, you're going to end up with a seven-layer freaking system. Because when you fit everything into where it'll go, that's how many, that's how many, it's really seven dimensions. It's not three like they taught you in school, right? And the seventh dimension isn't where you become reverse Superman. It's the seven dimensions of the forest system that we're talking about. The canopy and the subcanopy. Well, that canopy and subcanopy exist whether you're talking about an oak tree and a pawpaw tree or whether you're talking about a gumi bush and then an herb standing in for that and a smaller herb standing in for the regular herbaceous layer. It doesn't matter. Those dimensions are there. I had a conversation one time with a more conventional organic gardener um, toward the beginning of this, way back at the beginning of this show. And um, he said, but what if I don't want seven layers? And I said, but they exist in space and time. Whether you fill them or not, they exist. And if you don't fill them, eventually nature will fill them with things that you don't want. So if you don't fill your vining layer with grapes or kiwis or beans or something like that, nature will send brambles. So it's up to you, or you're going to have to constantly prevent it from happening. 
So you can work really, really hard, or you can work with the reality of the system. That's what we've been talking about today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can't tell, I kind of love this stuff. Because I believe that this understanding is fundamental knowledge that we should be teaching everybody in the world all the time, from the time they're little kids until they grow up. And I'll tell you right now how dangerous this thought, this line of thought is. As I said when I talked about things like, you know, agriculture versus, you know, like the agricultural world versus the horticultural world, the people that lived, our ancestors over 10,000 years ago, and the indigenous cultures, the reason they were wiped out the Native Americans, the aboriginals in Australia, etc. The reason that settlers wiped them out in reality was because they were dangerous. And the reason they were dangerous to them is our civilization has nothing to offer them. So they can't be controlled. And when you learn this, you become that. The more you can feed yourself, clothe yourself, provide your own security, conduct your own commerce and trade, the less the establishment, is the term we use now, has to offer you. And so if you want to be an insurrectionist, this is the way. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another episode of the Survival Podcast, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, remember, you can always support the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, where you'll see everything that I've reviewed, available alphabetized by category. And today I'm bringing you, yesterday I brought you a hydroponic fertilizer. Today I'm buying, bringing you the other hydroponic fertilizer I recommend. This is called Master Blend. I won't spend long on it. I'm just going to tell you that this stuff works, and it's cheap. And I don't want you out dumping bags and bags and bags of NPK on the ground. I think that's a bad idea. The amount of fertilizer used in hydroponics is extremely limited, and the wastewater can be fed to trees, bushes, and vines, and it's fine. It's not going to destroy your ecosystem. People tell me things like, hydroponics systems are sterile. Okay, really? Really? Then why do my legumes, which require beneficial bacteria to produce nitrogen nodules, in, in my hydroponics system, why are they covered in nitrogen nodules if it's a sterile environment? Because you don't know what you're talking about, right? So we can use too much, and I am moving more back toward um, aquaponics in most things, but when it comes to ease, especially compact, small space growing, guys, hydro is the easy thing. I said this on Unloose the Goose the other day, where, or I think it was an interview with Sal of course, I've been doing so many interviews now, I don't even remember anymore, but When you do aquaponics, there's two things you can kill, the plants and the fish, right? When you do hydro, there's one thing you can kill, the plants. And they're a lot harder to kill than the fish. And if you test your thing or you just look at it and you go, that, that plant's deficient, you just add more nutrient. As long as you don't add too much, you're going to be fine. You try that with aquaponics, you start adding this type of nutrient to an aquaponics system, you won't necessarily kill your fish, but you can and you probably will because you probably don't know what you're doing, which is why you're doing it that way in the first place. So... Um, my other thing, though, and I keep saying this this time of year, hydroponic systems, even if they're pseudo-hydroponic because you're using like soil, like a neutral soil or something like a cocoa core or something like that, and you're setting it in a pan of hydroponic solution, a little rack system, a little mini greenhouse system, grow lights, or straight crack key like I, my system is, for starting plants, oh my God, is it easy. And oh, do they grow fast, and oh, do they put beautiful roots on. And the only thing you really have to do is 
get them out of the little net pot or whatever you're doing them in before the roots get too big because the way they grow is crazy. And you grow and you get your lights down close to your plants and you grow, so they don't have to stretch and get laid. You grow mean little badger plants, man, little honey badger plants. And a little bit of hardening off, get them in the garden, and they just take off, guys. I had more success with plants starting with hydro than anything else I've ever done. And this is the most economical thing. Or if you're going to do, like, major hydroponic growing, th th this is so economical it's ridiculous. It really is. So that's why I recommend it for you. Uh, also, you can become a member of the MSB. You do that. You help support the show. comes out to about 18 cents an episode. You get a bunch of discounts, and some new stuff is coming soon. Right now, there's something like 80 discount partners available, which means some of them you will use every year. And if you use a few of them every year, you'll probably get all your money back and support the show. Remember, without you guys that are members, I couldn't do this every day. What you just got, it wouldn't happen. It, it, it just, I mean, I would love to be able to not worry about money coming in at all. Uh, I do okay, but I ain't rich. I'm not a multimillionaire or anything like that. And to be able to dedicate my life to this work, that's how I do it. And I don't do it like PBS. Uh, it's not a donation. It's not a tithe. Right? It is a value for value exchange. And on that, I take cryptocurrency. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today as we continue on high, the Highwaymen Week. Um, Silver Stallion. Silver Stallion. So, um, this is one that, again, I think if you don't think you've heard it, unless you've been under a rock for the last 30, 40 years, you've heard it. And it's, you know, I'm going to ride and I'm going to get this perfect little, this perfect Silver Stallion and, and head off and ride and ride and ride. And, you know, we don't really do a lot of horseback riding anymore, do we? The horse is not what it used to be for mankind. Now, some of y'all probably, you know, you're probably horse people and you're on a horse every day. And I, I understand that. But you know what I mean, even y'all. Like, it wasn't that long ago that almost everything and everyone that moved across this country was either, if you're lucky, you're in a train, otherwise you're using a horse. The farms relied on horses and oxen. Uh, but men relied on horses for transportation. That's kind of the time that they're singing about here. But there's a certain freedom that comes with that. And to me, that's, this song still works in 2021. Because how many of y'all, when you just need to feel a little bit better, you just need to focus your mind, whatever, you get in that car or that truck, and you hit a back road, and you cruise, and you have that freedom. And to me, it's the same mindset. But it also makes me wonder, as amazing as it will be, that I think not that long in the future, we will have cars that drive themselves. And I think we will have less accidents and less vehicular deaths. And I don't know how a cop's going to write me a freaking citation for being DUI if I'm sitting in the back seat talking to somebody on the Internet and the car's driving itself because I'm not driving, the car is. And I know self-driving stuff we have today doesn't do that yet. But it will. And if you don't think it will, you're just in denial. And I just wonder, as we continue to evolve these technologies, will we lose this spirit? Because damn no, we've lost quite a bit of it already. And will our, you know, will my, my, see my grandchildren are old enough already, they've already been in the car, even if they're not driving. And they already understand it. They already know what it is to get in the car. My grandson's already talking about one day when he gets a car. He's 10. Will his children even know? 
How many things do I know about and remember that my grandchildren, when I tell them just a crazy old man with crazy old stories? What are we going to lose next? Hopefully not all the spirit that is the Silver Stallion. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Under